The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fertility FM, brought to you by CCRM Fertility. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm thrilled to be talking to you two, Taylor Strecker and Dr. Carter Owen, today to talk all about LGBTQ family building, what it looks like. I think that this is a topic, I mean, fertility in general is something that is very mysterious to people. And then I think this on top of it probably seems even more mysterious. So I feel like let's start off by just introducing yourselves and talking a little bit about your initial journey with this. So I'm Dr. Owen. I work at CCRM Northern Virginia. I'm also gay. I have a wife. Um, We have two boys. They are seven and five. And we conceived our boys using donor sperm IUI. We obviously did this a little while ago. So we use Seattle Sperm Bank. We Mm -hmm. had a really good experience with them. And this was back when the sperm banks were not doing expanded carrier screening. Okay. And our clinic didn't really counsel very well on what it would mean if my wife did expanded carrier screening. And she just kind of signed up for it and got a result back that said she was a carrier for something rare. Right. And of course, I am a dork. So (laughs) I not only did reproductive endocrinology and infertility, I also did medical genetics training. Uh So I'm like, okay, we have this result. We can't not use it. So I called every single sperm bank we could have used and the only one that had done expanded carrier screening on any donors was Seattle. So wow. that, that that's why we ended up using Seattle. And that's standard procedure now because I'm like, yes. I mean, th- so it's since your first, we're like seven years apart in mm-hmm. this process. So a yeah. lot has changed over that course of yeah. seven years. So that was sure. that was seven years ago. Well, yeah. for yeah. me, I, I haven't actually even heard that term before coming from what what I my experience. So can you just give like a little definition of what that is? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the when we do the blood draw on the two partners Uh or on the intended parent who's going to be using the donor gamete, so sperm or egg. And we're trying to make sure you don't stumble into a rare genetic disorder. So cystic fibrosis, thalassemia, sickle cell disease, for instance, these are all autosomal recessive disorders. And I'm taking you back to high school bio here, but it's big A, little a meets big A, little a. Right. And then you got the one in four chance of little a, little a. The way that I understood it too, layman's terms, is so before I was married to my wife, I was married to my ex-husband, my husband, and he's Jewish. And so a lot of our friends had to test for Tay-Sachs. Mm-hmm. That's the, yep. yes. And so it was like that, my understanding of that, where it's, you know, it's a concern of a super rare gene with another super rare gene causing, you know. That's right. And then there would down. be a one in four chance if they were both carriers, right? Correct. Right. But so a same if, sex couple does that as well as like a heterosexual couple, correct? Like what is the difference? So in a same sex couple, you would be matching up with your donor gamete. So like your sperm donor, your sperm right, donor. Right, right, right. So like, so my wife came back positive as a carrier for galactosemia. So now we're trying to find a donor who's not, not. positive right. as a carrier for galactosemia. So we don't have a one in four risk of having a child with that. Right, right. And at the time, the sperm bank's view of this was if they found a donor who was a carrier for something, that would make the donor defective that would make the donor undesirable. Yeah. They wanted to have perfect donors, clean donors. Okay. And and they were only doing Jewish panels and they were only yep. doing like sort of the the big things, the things that everyone had kind of heard of, like cystic fibrosis, for instance. So right. 
So yes, Seattle had a list of about patients at the time that they had screened with the expanded carrier screen, the same one my wife had had, fortunately. And it severely limited our choices. Right. Which in a way was a blessing at the time because it meant that we didn't have to have like the world is your oyster problem where we had so many choices. And we were able to find a really, really good donor who fit all our other criteria, all the fun stuff, you know, eye color and height and all that, all that. And what he majored in in college. Yeah. No, that's but, so interesting um, to know. Like, I would want to know what Taylor's criteria would be, too. Yeah, because we, we, pe- found a, we found a renaissance man, someone who was first an engineer and then later became an artist. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm Taylor Strecker. Yeah, I hello. am not a doctor. My dad's a doctor, which makes me think so. I think I'm a doctor, but she's a doctor <laughs> and I'm not a doctor. I am also gay. I am a podcaster. I work with Whitney with Dear Media. And my wife and I, we decided we wanted to go the IUI route like you guys did. But because my wife, Taylor, also named Taylor, Taylor and Taylor, very, very gay of us. But she had some sort of hormonal issue that they were concerned about. So rather than IUI, we actually are now in, well, we're, we went through IVF we actually have embryos. We have two, but we have not yet done implantation. So my okay. wife is not pregnant and we are going to probably start, we we're going to start this fall, but we decided to push it off until very early 2024 for a bunch of reasons. But yeah, so that's where we are in the process. Okay. And when it came, so we are also using CCRM. They're incredible and amazing. And we used California Cryobank actually for our sperm donor. They were also fantastic. The genetic testing, like you were talking about, it's just standard procedure now. So you go through it no matter what. So my wife went through it. I actually, I have yet to do, to retrieve my eggs, but I'm planning on also retrieving my eggs so we can both have one of our own biological children. Right. Although I'm not quite sure how I feel about it, but I want to talk more with you because I feel like maybe your experience can shed some light on where we are in the process. I'm also a crazy person, but the good thing about me is like, I know that I'm crazy. So at least I can like work with my therapist ahead of time to prevent me like really losing my shit. Like you're very, you're very socially aware of your craziness. Yeah. <laughs> very, very, very. But so when it came to picking our sperm donor, we are very superficial and we wanted the hottest mofo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why not? And when he popped up, we were like, it's him. It was like undeniable. So we, it was like three days before Christmas. So we called. And we were like, that's our guy. But so much, so many of the vials had already gone. So it was kind of like, you know, it's a race. It's a race to get his sperm. Because what is it? They only allow, what is it, 19 vials to be donated? Oh, I don't know about that. But so many families, only so many families can have vials and then they cut it off. Yeah, there's like some sort of law that's been passed. Okay. Where a donor can only donate X amount of vials. I don't really know much more beyond that. But basically, uh-huh. there's a limited amount. And if you don't get it, you're shit out of luck, right. essentially. Right. So, if you, yeah, if you we found were... the person that you wanted, then you have to move on to the next. Okay. So I'm these questions may seem ignorant or stupid, but I'm just going to ask them because if I'm thinking them, then maybe someone else is thinking them out there. Yeah. For both of you, did you each know whose eggs? Like I know, Taylor, you just said that your your wife went through the egg retrieval to then carry yes. the the baby that was then genetically her, her match. But was that like a known, like, did you always know that, sh- that sh- that's what you guys wanted to do? And same with you, Dr. Owen, do you have one of each? A- and then same goes for who's going to carry. Like, how did those mm-hmm. conversations happen? 
So my wife, I mean, I, so my wife was like a born mother. Like she's wanted to be a mother since I met her, uh-huh. since forever. Like she even said that if she never found a partner, she would still have gone through this procedure by herself. Okay. So being a mom is a is a non-negotiable with Tay. Uh-huh. So with that being said, it was kind of like, and she's also younger than me, which, you know, I'm unfortunately, biologically, time is against women. <gasps> so it just was kind of like a natural decision that she would be the one that was going to carry. Okay. She also really wants to carry. Okay. And- when we went to see CRM, uh, Dr. Notman, our doctor, she said, what happens is sometimes same-sex couples will come in and the woman who wants the child and wants to carry for whatever reason can't. And so it's like the partner who maybe doesn't want the child or doesn't want to carry is the one that ends up having to. And so she was like, okay, let's see what happens. But when we went into our uteri, it's plural. Tay, she kept saying this to Tay. Oh my God, it's gorgeous. It's so beautiful and beautiful. This is like the story of our relationship. Like this is what everybody says about our dichotomy. And then I went in, it was like the upside down. It was like dark and like particles floating and like haunted. And she was like, good thing you don't want to carry. And I was like, shit, no, I do want to carry. But no, I don't. So Tay's going to actually not only carry for her biological child, but if we decide to go the route of having my own, yeah, she'll also carry for me. Got it. Which is kind of awesome, I think. Yeah. yeah. But it, it works for us, for sure. Yeah. But what was your journey like? We have one of each. One of each. So Sue went first because I was trained as an OBGYN mm-hmm. and I saw every bad thing that can happen during pregnancy and delivery. Right. And I was, and there's a curse on OBGYNs who are pregnant no. that something bad will happen. Ugh. And I was so afraid that something awful would happen to me that she'd be too too afraid to... Go. Go. So I was like, okay, you go first. (laughs) So she went first and had the most uneventful, beautiful pregnancy and had our had our first son. And she even her delivery was like the kind of delivery where me and the nurse looked at each other and she's like, She's lying to me. She's done this before. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And for me, I have always been very kind of androgynous. And it was actually like a I had a lot of struggles about the idea of being pregnant because it's kind of the most outwardly feminine thing you can do. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And I ultimately decided that I wanted to. And every day I woke up and told myself this is a temporary Mm -hmm. condition Mm -hmm. and it will be over, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad I did it because, you know, I have... My little mini me. Right. You know, yeah. Right. I felt the I same way, though. While I was doing it, I was like, I want this to be over. But then after I did it, I was happy that I did it. But I also feel like I don't ever have to do it again. <laughs> right. But so I think like starting from the beginning and especially with you, Dr. Owen, saying you were doing IUI and then now, Taylor, you're doing IVF. I know that we wanted mm-hmm. to talk about the differences, but I feel like same-sex and transgender couples obviously face unique fertility circumstances, but they don't know that they have so many different options. So before we get into the differences between IUI and IVF or same-sex marriages, why don't we just talk about like all of the options that are available to same-sex couples? Sure. So I start every consult with my, you know, LGBTQ patients by saying, what's your dream? You know, what do you want? We need eggs. We need sperm. We need a hospitable uterus. Right. And I let them kind of tell me what they've sort of imagined things, how things will go. Mm -hmm. And then I do my best to basically make their dream come true. Right. Mm -hmm. No guarantees. Right. Like like we've said. And, you know, for the for the same sex female couples, it could be IUIs. So medical turkey baster. Mm -hmm. So using donor sperm. And of course, there's options there, right? It could be a known donor. Right. We thought about that 
my best, best friend from since I was in kindergarten. We were in love in kindergarten and now we are both gay. So that really worked out. But I adore him. He's a Harvard professor. He's gorgeous. Like I was, He's fun. I was like, this is a great sperm donor. He's also a shit starter, though. So I was like, oh, a little bit nervous about A little bit too much sass. Um, yeah. But Tay was really, she's like very territorial mm-hmm. <laughs> and with this idea of having children. So she was like, I don't want to introduce any scenario in which it could get complicated and messy and have somebody that like actually wants to come in and also parent. So that's why we right. decided to go with the sperm donor. But yeah. I was very tempted to kind of like, it takes a village kind of like a yeah. mentality. Yeah. You know? But Dr. Owen, do you ever recommend something to someone? Because... I feel the same. I had a family member who needed eggs and I was like, I'm so there. Like I would love to give them to her. And then I thought, but then that it just creates obviously such an an interesting, complicated dynamic. So yeah. Do you have an opinion on that or is it very much just like whatever the patient obviously says goes? Well, that's why we recommend third-party reproduction counseling uh-huh. so that all the interested parties can sit down together okay. uh-huh. and work it out. That makes wow, sense. Wow, we didn't do that. Well, if it was a known donor. Got you, got yeah, you, got yeah, you. Right. I so, was even saying advocating for myself wanting well, sure. a known yeah, donor. No, yeah, you, uh-huh. you could have, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, let's ship us out. <laughs> yes, yeah. but, but yes, that that is something that we require yeah. if, if you're going that route, just so that everyone can work through any hangups they have. Right. All the possible scenarios that they may not even be thinking about could happen. Exactly. And and one of the most important that I always stress to patients um, when they're using donor gametes is, and again, eggs and sperm is what gametes refer to, mm-hmm. is how do you describe origins to your child? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're still thinking about this too, mm-hmm. even with, you know, a sperm donor. It's, and I actually, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this because we probably should have known before we picked the person, which even further solidifies how superficial we are. But I actually don't fully know if he's somebody who wants, is open to even meeting mm. the child once they turn mm-hmm. 18 mm-hmm. or if he actually is closed. I don't know. We really should have looked more into that. Oops, where where we are, it is what it is. Yeah. But this is something that I really, I think about a lot and I struggle with like, you know, because there's going to be a third person here and they're going to have an interest in knowing their biological history. And so I'm yeah. not really sure how we're going to handle that. Yeah. And, and that's something that I do talk about in all my consults. I talk to them about how anonymity hardly exists in 2023 and it's probably not going to exist in 18 years. Right. Well, I think that's like maybe a good thing in the long run. You know, it, I, I think leaving it up to the child, ultimately what they're wanting to do and what they're comfortable doing. I mean, that's that's the route that we plan to go. Right. Yeah. Do you start to think about, Dr. Owen, like when you start to have these conversations? Have you started to have these conversations with your kids? Yeah. So the teaching is basically that you start to have these conversations basically as soon as they have consciousness. So like three years old. Wow. So there's a book that I recommend that's called What Makes a Baby? And I always have to pause to think about how to say that because I once Googled how to make a baby in front of a couple (laughs) in my office. And it's a very inappropriate Google search. I can imagine. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's called What Makes a Baby. And it's a very cute book. It's got very asexual drawings. And it's got like little figures that have eggs and little figures that have sperm. And it's got a picture of like egg and sperm doing a little dance. That's fertilization. And it has a picture of like the eggs and all their stories inside and the sperm and all their stories inside and how they they're not two things anymore. They're one thing. And and how they they share their story. And then 
at the end, it talks about like who was excited for you to come into this world. And Got you. It's so cute. And we read that story to our kids and it helps me tell my kids about what I do for a job, which right. is fun. But yeah, they, they know that they have a mama, a mommy and a sperm donor. And what was their reaction initially when like the first, first time you discussed it? Just very normal. Yeah. You just totally normalize it. It's it's nothing. That's what it is. It really yeah, is just normalizing it. I mean, I'm having yeah. a similar conversation, but different in that we're using a surrogate for our second child. I had multiple miscarriages and then the surrogate had a miscarriage. But I found that just telling Sunny the facts of what's happening in the most simplest terms is the best and easiest. Like I remember when we had a goldfish and the goldfish died and we asked a child development specialist like how to talk to Sunny about what death was. And she was like, you literally just tell him that their body stopped working and like mm -hmm. exactly what happened. And so basically we told him that mommy and daddy made this this little baby and we're just putting it in another body that's essentially like the oven that's cooking it. Mm -hmm. So well, you should and he seems to understand it. And I think that that will that normalizes the whole conversation. And if we were to hide it or not tell him what was going on, it's like I'm just then continuing the cycle of like stigmatizing right. all these different ways to get pregnant, which don't need to be stigmatized. <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. And and I would totally recommend you get the book that I'm talking about. I, I to, will. To read it to Sunny, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you just, it is what it is. And and I always tell people in every consult, I say, there's always a way for me to help you build your family. It's not if we can do it, it's just how we do it. Right. right. So. Okay, so you did IUI for both of yours? Yeah, so my wife did four IUIs with our donor and then I just replenished the same donor for me for like two years later. And then I did, I also required four IUIs and then we had our second. Wow. So you but had to go through the, four the thing. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The thing that I always tell patients though about IUI cycles is that it is a marathon. Mm -hmm. You have to understand that you are embarking on a marathon. Yeah. The other analogy I use is USPS ground service. <laughs> And IVF is Amazon Prime, uh -huh. or in the other analogy, it's the sprint. Right. right. So right. they are both emotional in their own unique way. Right. But you have to prepare yourself for that kind of journey. You can't view IUI as like the easy way right, or, or something like that. You just have to figure out what your priorities are. And, you know, some people prioritize a more natural way yeah. or maybe a less expensive way. However, I would yeah. I would counter now that sperm is so expensive now. Yeah, it's, it I mean, it's more than $1,000 a vial in most mm -hmm. cases, uh -huh. which is not what it was when we paid for it seven years ago. Yeah. But it's it's about $1,000 a vial or more. It's a Bottega bag. <sighs> yeah. <You know? laughs> and Shit each IUI. <laughs> that's how I look at it. all the money we've been spending on our future child. I'm like, that's a Chanel. The implantation is a Chanel. I'm like, ah! I, I, so. I, it's hard not to think about the finances. And like I was telling you guys before, we are going to do a whole episode on the financial planning and process because yeah. it is a huge aspect of this. But 
when I think about it, I'm like, what else would I rather invest in? Like, there's literally (laughs) nothing else. Yes, of course, you can, you know, think about the things that you would want to buy, but then think about, (laughs) like, I guess for me, it's like, I already have a kid, so I understand the love that I'm going to have for this child, but you're you're not quite there yet. You know what the love for a Bottega bag feels like right now. (laughs) I really, like, I always say to Tay, if one of, like, if, let's say my friends who in a heterosexual relationship was talking about her husband and like doing my actions I would be like he's the worst leave him (laughs) I'm honestly like I can't believe Tay's still with me I'm really like the archetype of like a straight white middle-aged man I'm the worst so but also like like, with the like instincts of a woman in shopping and girl math I'm a disaster so I'm really trying to work (laughs) through my demons in therapy we just had a therapy session about this the other day and I cried a lot, but like it was productive. You know, I'm like getting through it, but we're getting through it as we're in it. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So it it, is so helpful. It's so helpful to be having those conversations while you're in it because you're in inundated with so much information that you don't even realize you're going to have to process. So it is really, really helpful for you as a couple to be talking to someone about all these different confusing feelings that you're having, you know? Yeah. And also, I think that's why I'm so happy that we were initially upset when it wasn't IUI because that was the plan. And like you said, it's less expensive. Right. But the kind of, and you can correct me because I know I'm going to be wrong, but like it feels like we are a little bit more in control with the timeline. Yes. With IVF. Totally. And so like, I'm really happy that we ended up having to go IVF, even though it was more expensive. I would rather pay a little bit more to have a little bit more control over like, especially because I'm so hesitant about like when it's an ideal time for us to do it. I know my mother-in-law is always like, there's never an ideal time. And I'm like, shh, but like, like, I know she's a thousand percent right, but at least there's a little bit more Control. control because I feel like had we done IUI and Tay got pregnant immediately, I would have freaked out. Yeah. So at least now we're kind of like agreeing on like when the best time for implantation is. But I think something that I'm a little bit skirting over and overlooking is like, I think in my mind, I'm just saying like, and when we're ready, it'll happen. And it's right. like implantation's not a guarantee. That's also yeah. true. Two embryos, which is ideal, but also I, I know people that went through like five embryos, eight embryos and nothing. Right. And so what right. like statistically. Yeah. The, the difference is like, so with a same-sex female couple undergoing IUIs, you're trying to approximate the heterosexual couple sort of having natural fertility, right. you know, norm. So that's going to be somewhere around maybe 25% each month, which is not great. Mm-hmm. And an embryo transfer, if you have the highest quality embryo, that could be 70% chance in that month. So okay. that's that's a majorly different percentage, but I, I don't know what the percent chance are with your embryos. I, don't I know if feel you know like that. they said it was in the 60s. Okay, that's great. Okay, great. That's a high quality embryo. So, okay, good. But that's, that's still like maybe three times as better than the IUI. Right. But I, I distinctly remember my wife having her first IUI. And of course you go into it and I always tell patients, okay, you got to go into this thinking, okay, it's going to take four to six tries. Right. It's going to take four to six tries. But then my wife had her first IUI and I went, it might work. It might work. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. So exactly. once you do the IUI, can you then, how long do you have to wait until you start again if the first, if it doesn't work? Oh, you just, right. the next month. Oh, and same with IVF. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I mean, unless there's a miscarriage and then we're having to follow you down and. Right. 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 That's what happened with our surrogate. She miscarried at eight weeks and then 
then takes, there was the process of getting while. off certain medications and then going back on. So then that was like another added three months, you know. Mm-hmm. So each time you yeah. try, you don't realize, like you said, you you it could happen the first time and it could not happen for years, mm-hmm. you know. So right. the the goal is, I think, to just release control, which is the hardest thing to do because it's just not on our timeline at all. I right? know my biggest fear is that, ironically, <laughs> my biggest fear is that neither embryo takes. Uh-huh. And then we are on this journey that you hear a lot about with uh-huh. a lot of couples, whether uh-huh. they're same sex or uh, heterosexual. And uh, then we're like going back into the egg retrieval. And then it's like, well, now do I go in? I and know. it's like, I'm, I'm and- in the same exact mode as you. And every time I go there, I try to tell myself, we're not there yet stop Mm -hmm. going to that place we'll cross that bridge when we get there because what what can we we can't there's we have no idea right dr owen like what would you what would you say to us (laughs) yeah so so yeah like about 70 percent of my job is psychological counseling yeah i can imagine and what i tell you is take one step at a time Mm -hmm. understand that you're making the best decisions you can with the information you have available Mm -hmm. Your doctor is doing the very best they can mm-hmm. to help you make the best decisions that you can and that you have to take each step having no regrets and being in step with your partner. Right. Because no told you so's are allowed in my clinic. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I'm bad about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't, you can't do it like that. You got to be together. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And then... You just have to know that you did the very best that you could. Yeah. And right. then and then you just take the next step. And like I said, there is always a way. You just have to keep knowing that there is always a way. It is not if, it is just how. Right. Let me, I know we're like, we were going to do a ton of financial questions, but this is something that really is like plaguing me. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about it with my wife and it's like, we are committing to doing this, but I feel like we need to commit to also like a financial amount that the highest will go. Yeah. Do you mm-hmm. like, have you had couples where they like hit their peak and then they've like, like they've, they've maxed out of what they can afford and like, what are some other course of actions if that happens? Like, mm-hmm. I don't even like, is that a normal thing to discuss? I guess is the question. Or is it kind of just like, once you're in this, you're in it and you just gotta like figure out a way to make it work financially speaking. So I always encourage patients when they're making their decisions to consider their emotional bucket. Okay. Consider their financial bucket Mm -hmm. when they're making their decisions with me about which path they're going to take and how they navigate, you know, how to keep those buckets as full as they can. Right. And certainly there can come a time where the emotional bucket might, you know, get too empty or the financial bucket might get too empty. And I do have patients who will actually take a break to switch jobs. Wow. To get benefits that wow. will Im- that will improve their ability to access care. Mm-hmm. Wow. There are um Yeah, there are. Like I jobs have, out there who yep. like golden ticket to they cover fertility. Yeah. My mm-hmm. sister in law actually has a job like that. My wow. wife should go get a job with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, so. but it, yeah, I mean, it's becoming more and more common, which is a great thing, especially for the younger generations. Mm-hmm. So when you're considering either open season, if there's a way for you to switch into a different benefits package through the job you're in, or mm-hmm. if you had the opportunity to to have a, like a, you know, a lateral or an upward move in right. your work, it's important to consider your fertility benefits because they're absolutely 
lots of companies out there that are mm -hmm. offering benefits that are just absolutely incredible mm -hmm. for fertility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And we were saying like, when it comes to even if you're young and you just want to freeze your eggs, you know, that still could be $10,000 or mm -hmm. whether yep. you're our age mm -hmm. and trying to get pregnant, I think it's important to think about when you're looking for a job, like the company's ethos as a whole and how they're going to support you. Have you, like, I'm sure there are people coming to freeze their eggs that are looking to undergo like any kind of gender affirmation treatment or anything. I feel someone told me recently that someone took their daughter in because they thought that this was maybe going to be the path that they were taking, but they wanted to have her eggs in case. Mm -hmm. And I I wanted to know what your experience has been with that. Hmm. Yeah. So I actually partner with the Pride Clinic in DC at Children's National. Mm -hmm. And then, so I, I see, I guess I've, I've probably done, I don't know, eight consults at this point with adolescents who are looking to transition. Uh -huh. And so I support them and offer free consults to those kids and their parents. And honestly, it's mostly for the parents. Yeah. Yeah. To discuss fertility preservation. It's much more important for the individuals with testicles because once they start hormone blockers or like estrogen treatment, uh -huh. the testicle is a factory of sperm. Okay. And if you shut down that factory and then later on you wanted to turn the factory back on, mm -hmm. it may never turn back on. Wow. Or if it did, it may only turn back on in such a way that you would make very, very few sperm. Uh -huh. Like the surgical extraction and like it, it just may not work. Right. So for those patients, the difficulty is where are they in their pubertal development? Right. And are they at a point where they have actually started to make enough sperm to get a sample? Mm -hmm. And sometimes self-stimulation is a trigger for them. Huh. That they, they don't like that part of their body. Right. And so it can be really challenging. Is there an ideal age or like a general age where it's optimal to retrieve the sperm? Usually around the age of like 14 or 15 is when they can, you know, masturbate and get a sample that mm -hmm. would be adequate for freezing. Mm -hmm. And we usually work with Fairfax Cryo, which, which is local. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll send those folks an email. They're awesome. And I say, okay, I've got, you know, a transgender kid. They're going to come in. I want you to work with them. And we freeze it in such a way that no matter who their partner would be in the future, it would be suitable to use like with a surrogate or whoever, because mm -hmm. that's important too, because there's FDA guidelines for that. Mm -hmm. But I make sure that they're like treated like red carpet rolled out, you know, because this is so sensitive and of difficult. Of course. And then and then for the individuals with ovaries, fortunately, there's really very little pressure on that side because wow. it's taking testosterone is analogous to being on birth control pill to the best of our knowledge at this point. So the studies on that side have basically shown that for individuals that pause testosterone later, if they go through IVF compared to their peers, they have similar outcomes. Hmm. So they can even pause testosterone. And if they had a partner who had sperm, they could even have, you know, intercourse in, you know, in natural way and could even carry a pregnancy. So I usually am reassuring them and reassuring the parents that they don't need to freeze eggs. Any, yeah. Yes, yes, that would be the most conservative thing to do because we're the knowledge is still evolving and all that, but it's probably analogous to taking a birth control pill long term and the eggs are just hibernating. They're just 
you know, you're still cycling. It's still, right. Age is still the most important factor. That's still right. the, the party line. Uh -huh. Right. But. Okay. Given the fact, like, regardless of sexual orientation or mm -hmm. identification, gender identification, I have a question just about in general. So many people now we're talking about freezing our eggs. Like, is there like, should we be doing it like way earlier than we're even considering? Like, should women be doing it in their like 20s? Age is the most important factor. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, if I guess fortunately, because of like what Whitney was saying, these companies like the Facebook and Googles of the world that right. are offering this to their to their employees, I am seeing more and more women in their like 20s wow. who are coming mm -hmm. to see me to mm -hmm. do it at an age where it'll be much more successful than when wow. it was first kind of becoming a thing when we saw most of the patients in their upper 30s mm -hmm. where it's just not going to be as successful. As successful. And I think also, don't you find, I mean, uh, and I kind of hope this is the case, but women are trying to get pregnant later than obviously than we used to? Or is that maybe just like an urban city thing? Because it feels to me like women are obviously working towards careers now, not really trying to get pregnant until early 30s, early mid 30s, it feels like. It's definitely regional. I'm, I'm from Georgia. Okay. I don't know if I've said anything too Southern, but <laughs> I am from Georgia. It's definitely regional. I mean, I've got friends from from back home that had babies when we're supposed to. Yeah. Like I literally, <laughs> none of my friends, I feel like none of us got pregnant Same. after like before 30. I mean, and everyone's yes. almost still trying and we're almost 40. Yeah, same. Yeah. Definitely like all my friends. I mean, I'm so far behind. I'm 40, so I'm really far behind my friends. But like most of them were like earliest early 30s, yeah. more like mid to late. So yeah, yeah. Well, I definitely think totally. for everyone for listening sure. out there, yeah. we did a whole episode about the egg freezing process and ideal age and financial situation, all about that whole situation. But I, I, I just want to make sure that we have talked about all the possible scenarios for all the couples that come in, just so that okay. we're yeah, covering everything. I know, obviously, sure. CCRM doesn't have their own sperm bank or where you, excuse my lack of terminology, but an egg. We do have an egg bank. An egg bank. Okay. You do have an egg bank. Yeah. It's for CCRM patients only, but we do have an egg bank. Got it. Okay. But so, not a sperm okay. bank. All right. So if we have two individuals with ovaries that come in, yes. we could do donor sperm IUI. Yeah. We could do IVF with donor sperm. You could be doing autologous IVF, meaning this person's egg, sperm with their egg in their body to carry or reciprocal where you give it to your partner. Like what to I carry. would end up doing. Yes. Correct. Okay. 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 All right. So we, we call that reciprocal IVF. And of course, it could go both ways. Like. Right. Right. Taylor one. <laughs> very confusing. Taylor and Taylor. This is where it gets really confusing. Yeah. <laughs> Taylor 1 could create an embryo to put in Taylor 2. Taylor 2 could create an embryo to put in Taylor 1. Right. Yeah, we okay. actually thought of maybe doing that just to both bond. And then she said she didn't yeah. want her egg in my body. Rude. Oh, Because I've lived hard. Let's just be real. I support the, her saying that. <laughs> okay. That is hilarious. <laughs> and then, sorry, I just thought of something. Fun fact. You can induce lactation as the partner. No kidding. And breastfeed your partner's baby. My wife did that for my, for our second son. No that is way. amazing. That I want to do. Cause I yeah. feel like that is such, I mean, 
breastfeeding, I mean, I, I've never done it before, but I can only imagine it's very bonding for yeah. the baby and the mother. Yeah. It just creates resentment for the person who's trying to breastfeed and having trouble. Right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I just, the good thing about it is that you have four boobs to choose from. Correct. Uh, as good. opposed no, to No, it was only... good for the baby. Just bad for the psyche of the mom who just delivered. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Oh, okay. Oh, my God. I mean, think <laughs> so, about all the complications there. Yeah. I'll definitely want to do that. And you can do that, too, if you use a surrogate, Whitney. Oh, yeah. You can induce lactation to breastfeed your baby. Yes. She said she would be willing to pump and, and send for as long as we wanted. No, but I mean, but you could induce lactation to oh, breastfeed your baby. Oh, my God. There's no way I'm doing that <laughs> <laughs> She's like, the whole point is I'm keeping my body. I'm not. No, no, way. no, 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 no. But no, no. I, and I breastfed for way too long. It was not not. A, I totally was guilted. I succumbed to mom guilt on that one. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I feel like if my, if Timmy had the option, if he if I could induce lactating in him, he would probably want to. For sure, I get it. <laughs> That's amazing. Right. OK, so then on individuals with testicles. OK, so they need an egg and a uterus. Uh huh. So for that journey, they need a donor egg that can come from friend or family member. And this is the same for sperm, right? Mm -hmm. It could be friend or family member. That's the known option. Mm -hmm. It could be from the bank for the egg or the sperm. And then you could do agency donor for your egg. Okay. So that's where you work with an agency. They identify an individual who would come, get medically cleared by the clinic, go through an IVF cycle, have their eggs retrieved fresh. They would never be frozen. Okay. They would be um, inseminated with the partner sperm. And what most same-sex male couples would do is they would, like they usually say they each want one biological child. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you divide the eggs into two cohorts. Each inseminates one cohort. They each have their own bio, you know, set. And then you have two sets of embryos and then you have your gestational carrier that they've picked also through an agency. Some agencies will do egg and gestational carrier. Right. Some agencies will only do one um, or the other. Right. And then you pick which embryos going in first. And then some gestational carriers will sign up for a sibling journey and say, OK, I'm going to do your first kid and then I'll come back to you, wow. you know, after and do the next one. But that's I think I've covered everything. Mm -hmm. It's amazing that there are so many options now. Yeah. I mean, but, but like I said, it, it's always what is your what's your dream? Right. And then and like you had said, sometimes like Dr. Notman saying to you, sometimes the person who doesn't want to carry has to, yeah. you know, sometimes we have that conversation where we'll go through the history and something will come up where I'll be like, OK, so let's just broaden, mm -hmm. you know, let's broaden it a little bit and let's talk right. about how we might need to consider this. But yeah, as much as I can, I try to honor what they bring to me. Right. That makes total sense. And then work backwards to get it done the, yeah. Yeah. Best way possible. I'm looking at my notes. I'm wondering if I missed anything. One thing is I feel like, and last thing, success rates. I feel like this is always something that doctors have a hard time answering. Timmy and I are always like, give me the numbers, give me the odds. Like I need some sort mm -hmm. of, you know, so is is there a success rate at your CCRM? Do you have a success rate? Is that something I know that we were talking about the fertility CCRM has to put out like a certain number so that people can know what their success rates are. So just explain to us that process. 
So with IUI, because it's medical turkey baster and we're basically just like throwing some stuff against a wall and hoping something sticks, right. that, like I said, is just trying to approximate sort of normal reproduction. Mm -hmm. And that's, I'd say the highest that may get is like 25 to 30%. And that may have something to do with the donor you select. Mm -hmm. And I should say this, that when you're looking for a donor, asterisk beside if it says they have known fertility in some capacity, that's a good sign. Okay. Right? Because then you know the sperm works. Right. 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 Okay. So that's always a good sign. And then obviously at the time of the IUI, we get a total modal sperm count in the clinic. And we want that to be at least 10 million. Okay. And if it's less than that, there's a lower chance it's going to work. Okay. If it's more than 10, great. But 10 is really the number we're shooting for. And this is also kind of a funny story. On the IUI that resulted in our first kid, the midwife who did it, it was five million, and which is low. Right. And the midwife who did it looked at me and my wife and said, "Better luck next time." <sighs> Just right it then was and there. The quietest drive home from the clinic. Oh. We were so sad. Oh. And then, like, so you know, that sperm though doesn't get tested beforehand. There's a guarantee given to you by the sperm bank. Okay. And if the sperm bank doesn't meet the guarantee, like I was ready to write a little note to the sperm bank and say, hey, this one didn't meet the guarantee. And they'll, they'll give you a, a vial to replace the one. Okay. But of course, if it works, right. you don't get another vial. Right. So we were delighted because it worked. Right. So it was obviously good sperm. But, you know, you don't need 10 million. All you need you is just, one. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's just that. But, yeah, I get it. But it. But I'm very careful when I do IUIs to, you know, if, if it falls below 10, I tell patients, like, listen, right. let me tell you a story. Yeah. It's all hope is not lost. Correct. Totally. Right. Correct. But, totally. but the goal is 10. You said success rates of IUI. Oh, success it rates. Was like okay. So that to, was. Yeah. Okay. So that you're trying to approximate normal, normal fertility. Okay. So IVF, that's just harder. At CCRM, I always tell patients I've hit the jackpot on jobs because we arguably have the best embryology lab and best pre-implantation genetics lab like in the world mm -hmm. and the most important decision that a patient's going to make is their lab mm -hmm. and if they're going to do pre-implantation genetics testing that lab mm -hmm. okay because obviously taking a five to seven cell biopsy on an embryo that's a, that's a risky business yeah and you could totally screw it up yeah okay so basically as long as you trust your pre-implantation genetics lab i do recommend doing that test okay so at ccrm totally should do it and then you have to look at the grade of your embryo. Right. And hopefully your lab is putting out high quality embryos. And at CCRM, obviously, we put out really high quality embryos. Since 2008, we've got data that tells us what's the percent chance of live birth by grading. That's how you know what your percent is, which is somewhere in the 60s. Right. Mm -hmm. Lots of other clinics don't have that kind of data and they kind of throw numbers around. Mm -hmm. And honestly, when other clinics tell patients numbers, I don't know where they're getting them from. Hmm. I'm not sure how they're measuring it exactly. Because you um, know exactly how you're measuring it. Yeah I, yeah, I just know that CCRM is like very scientifically rigorous mm -hmm. and anal retentive when mm -hmm. it comes to this stuff, which is exactly what you want when people are dealing with your eggs, your sperm, your embryos. Yeah. yeah. So when it comes to the success rates and how I talk to patients about success rates, I walk them through sort of what the, what the averages look like in terms of starting with 10 eggs, eight mature, six fertilize, about half become a blast. And then what we'd expect for age and how many would be chromosomally normal. And then sort of on average, they're going to be between 50 and 70% chance of live birth if they come back normal based on grading. Yeah. 
So you're in that, they're in that group. Right. And that's how I set their expectations about sort of how many cycles they might need to go through uh -huh. in order to be successful. Uh -huh. But that's how I talk to them about success rates. I try to not give them numbers that are not tangible yeah. and that they can't, because it doesn't help. It doesn't mm -hmm. help. It doesn't help. It's like such a gamble. It's like so, so, we, we think we want numbers, but they don't really solve the problem. <laughs> yeah. I try to tell them more about setting expectations. Like, okay, you yes. had you had 10 or 12 antral follicles and your AMH tells me you're not going to have a stubborn ovary. And I think we'll probably get about 10 eggs retrieved. So these are the averages. So based on your age, I think we're going to get one chromosomally normal embryo per cycle. Mm -hmm. And if you want to bank embryos and you're trying to have one kid, we're going to have to do this twice. Right. That's what I, that's what I think. Right. So that's how, that's how I talk to patients. That because I think is that's really kind of what they want to know. Yes. Yeah. I think that's refreshing and that's what we deserve to hear. I, nobody wants to be lied to, even if they, the truth is going to sting, you know, like right. we just want the truth. Yeah. And it also helps to like, you know, prepare yourself exactly. the, for, for whatever the journey is going to be. So exactly. with that being said, I know that you're not my direct doctor, but knowing that we have two embryos and that they are 60%, what would you predict would be? That our... You'll probably have one live birth. One live birth out of two. Yeah. Wow. And it'll be, and it'll be awesome if you have two. Right. Right. I like one, so I'm okay. I, I... Yeah. But, <laughs> but that's, that's what I tell patients, right? That, right? that each embryo has about a 50 to 70% chance of live birth. Right. And if you're trying to, for each live birth desired, you need about two, right? right? Because it's about a coin flip. Right. I wow. know. So that's why I feel like this, we just implanted our surrogate two days ago. And with our, I have five embryos, two girls, two boys, one unknown. Wow. The boys are technically a little bit stronger than the girls. They matured a day earlier or whatever, but we already have a boy. So we put in the strongest girl. It didn't work. We put in the second girl, even though knowing that the boys were stronger, it was still only like a they doctors were like a five to 10 percent chance difference or something. So it's still like I feel like each time we're doing it, the odds are getting better. But Still have no idea. Could go through all five with nothing. And, and I, I know I say that very cavalierly and I, I, I don't. That, that's not how I feel. But that's kind of after so many years of going through this, like kind of the energy I have about it at yeah. this point. Fingers crossed. Yes. Fingers crossed. Thank you, guys. And, and I, I'm going to sprinkle you with my pixie dust. I please pixie do. Dust. <laughs> and the, the, the due date would be on my what would be my late dad's birthday. So I feel like there's Aww, some sort of really nice. good omen there, but I also don't want to like read into anything, you know? Yeah. Anyways, you guys, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I've learned so much. I'm sure Taylor, you have um, yes. and everybody listening yeah. and I appreciate this. Thank you guys so much for doing this with thank me. Thank you so much, Wendy. Thank you. Of course.